The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Tableau Software and Dole Food Company. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us today and new listeners in the Atlanta and New York areas. Thank you for being with us again. In just a moment, we're going to tackle a difficult subject which has divided our nation, the legal definition of what constitutes torture and whether the CIA stepped over the line in using questionable interrogation techniques which have been brought to light in the 6,000-page Senate Intelligence Committee report. Former Deputy Assistant Attorney General, a man at the center of the controversy, Mr. John Yu, will be joining us to try to help us understand the definition of torture and whether the report is completely accurate. But before Mr. Yu joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. John Chun Yu was born in Seoul, South Korea. He immigrated to the U.S. as a child and grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yu earned his undergraduate degree in history and law degree from Harvard University. He clerked for Judge Lawrence H. Silberman on the U.S. Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia Circuit and Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Yu began teaching law at the University of California at Berkeley in 1993 and served as general counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee from 1995 to 96. In 2001, Yu was appointed Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration, where he served under Attorney General John Ashcroft. It was during this period that you authored several legal opinions, which included the use of, quote, enhanced interrogation techniques during wartime, as well as the president's authority to conduct warrantless wiretapping. You is the author of five books and also the recipient of the Federalist Society Bader Award. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report legal scholar, author, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General, John Yu. Welcome to the program, Mr. Yu. Rebecca, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. I'm so happy to speak to you. Um, You know, recently, after reviewing more than six million documents for five years, the Senate Intelligence Committee made portions of its report on CIA torture public. And it was pretty clear that your legal opinions were taken too far. So to open today's program, I'd like to start with a basic question. According to the law, what exactly is the definition of torture? Well, first, when we say the law, we mean an act passed by Congress to implement a treaty that we signed called the Convention Against Torture. And in yes. the statute, Congress defined torture as the specific intent to cause severe pain and suffering. And the problem is that the statute doesn't go in any really any other detail to talk about actual interrogation methods and whether they're overline or are okay. And so that's the task we had at the Justice Department when I was there In the very first few months after the 9-11 attacks, our uh, intelligence agencies, I think, uh, were very successful in capturing the top leaders of al-Qaeda who were not going to cooperate, were not going to speak at all, they were not going to, uh, they were not going to answer questions in a normal police interrogation setting. You know, I think one of them said, uh, I'll see you in New York. Uh, You know, they, they have no intention of cooperating. And so the question came is, what uh, would the CIA be allowed to do to interrogate the very top leaders of al-Qaeda, who we thought, this is just a few months after the 9-11 tax, we thought had plans for more attacks on the country, but without violating that law. And so we had to go through and review, one by one, each of these 
proposals by the CIA and make sure that they didn't step over the line that Congress set in the statute. Now, most of us are not lawyers, so just to clarify... Thank, thank God, thank God for that. <laughs> well, well, the fact is, we get confused. We're looking at a 6,000-page document, and we think, well, how do we even make heads or tails out of this? Now, uh, given that we're not lawyers, uh, many experts claim that the Constitution's Eighth Amendment, which prevents the government from engaging in cruel and unusual punishment, extended to torture... Uh, and and military interrogation abroad. But you, you disagreed with that opinion, is that right? Yes, first let me say about the report. Uh, you know, you make a good point. The report is very critical of the CIA. It, it gives the impression that despite whatever we said in the Justice Department, that there were CIA agents out in the field who were uh, essentially freelancing things on their own and uh, abusing prisoners going well beyond any authority they had and that the president didn't know about it and top leaders didn't know about it. We didn't know about Justice Department. The problem with that report that I think makes it a deeply flawed report is that it didn't interview any of the people who were directly involved with the program. I, I was not interviewed. I don't, I'm pretty sure from what I've read that uh, none of the major uh, administration people were interviewed, including uh, you know, top CIA officials. So this is, this is you know, as a lawyer, you don't have to be a lawyer to understand that at least when you want to have a full and fair report, you should hear from both sides, but most particularly the witnesses, the people who were there. My understanding so I, is there were no in-person uh, interviews. Yeah, this is a terror. So this is, I think that that just turned the report into a flawed enterprise from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, we would never allow something like this you know, any kind of investigation that the Justice Department would do, for example, or even your, you know, you know you're the district attorney down the street from you in, in your county or town. It's just, I think, a fundamental problem is, is it violates the, the, I think, the idea that you want to have all the information fully out there first before you analyze it and before you say someone did something right, someone did something wrong. And so I don't think that 6,000, no matter how long the report is, I don't think it can be trusted for that reason. And then I also think it was wrong. Even based on what I saw, this was not a group of rogue CIA agents. This was a program, very, as you said at the beginning of the show, difficult question. I wish we didn't have to answer it. But the 9-11 attacks and al-Qaeda forced us to have to answer this kind of question. And I think that it went up the chain of command all the way up to the president and was carefully reviewed, discussed, and decided all the way up at the top. And so this idea that you know there were these rogue CIA agents out there doing things without anyone knowing, I don't think is actually true based on what I what I knew from my time in the government. Well, now looking at what the Senate Intelligence Committee's report said, is there any part of you that feels that your legal opinions were taken too far by the CIA? I can't tell because I'm not sure whether what's in the report is true or not. Yeah, I'm that's, sure a, that's if we a actually, problem. You don't yeah, know the actually, veracity of what's been reported. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, from what I've seen in other accounts, you know, I think that the CIA was trying very carefully to obey the things we set out in the memo, that this is important. The thing that strikes struck me, and I think most Americans don't know about how the CIA operates, is that it's very concerned about acting legally. There's a, the CIA has a general counsel's office with uh, over 100 lawyers in it, and they're really worried about making sure they're complying with the law and staying uh, in tune with the political leaders in both the executive branch and in Congress, they don't want to. They don't want to be the people who get sent out to, uh, you know, take on dangerous missions and they get and then then get sold out. You know, get thrown under the bus. Sure, when everything but I believe to them before. <laughs> yes, but I believe you've gone public as saying that uh, if some of the things that are in the report, such as the rectal feeding. Uh, and uh, hydration activities, and uh, and the having to remove someone's eye because it was so da- badly ba- damaged uh, from beatings. If those things are in fact true, that they have that they went in fact too far. Yeah, I guess you know. So I was on a show, and they said, "Oh, well, the report says some of these things might have happened." And, I said, and I'm not sure if they did or not. If they did, they're outside the authorization we gave at the Justice Department. Yes, and those should be prosecuted if they are outside of the authorization. 
Yeah, depending on what really happened. Yes. <laughs> that's the problem. And that is the question. The oh, question yeah, is what really happened. Yeah, and, now, and I, now, I understand yeah. that. Yeah, what I will say, though, on that is that two different teams of prosecutors at the Justice Department looked into this and chose not to bring any charges. Yes, that's true. And we're going to talk, have to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what the Senate's report revealed about the treatment of detainees at Guantanamo. You're listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Have you checked out the Costa Report blog yet? Well, what are you waiting for? There's no quicker way to find out what newsmakers are saying than the Costa Report blog at RebeccaCosta.com. It's where the former CEO of Apple and PepsiCo, John Scully, predicts where the next tech breakthroughs are going to come from. And also where Trent Lott explains why a GOP reversal of the Senate nuclear option will signal real change in our nation's capital. And the Costa Report blog is where you'll discover why Alan Dershowitz is worried that ISIS is adopting Hamas-like tactics. You'll find all this and more at the Costa Report blog. A new blog is posted every week, and they're short, pithy, and tell the unvarnished truth. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com to get the latest blog. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And while you're there, be sure to register for updates and breaking news. The Costa Report blog bringing you the news the big networks don't and won't. Is your internet connection slow? Do you experience outages or dread calling customer support? How about your latency? Etheric Networks can help you. Etheric Networks is the Bay Area's locally owned alternative to DSL, satellite, and cable. Etheric provides fast, reliable, symmetric internet via our wholly owned network of towers covering the Bay Area from Salinas to Santa Cruz to Sausalito. We install a two-foot dish on your building and point it to one of our towers to connect you directly to the major data centers of Silicon Valley. Etheric directly connects to Tier 1 companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon to ensure high-quality service from your building to the world. KSCO Business Special. Business service up to 10 megabits per second symmetric for as little as $299 a month with a $399 installation fee. Etheric also offers high-end 100 megabit and even gigabit and 10 gigabit service starting at $599 a month with installation starting from $500. Etheric Networks. Call 650-399-4200. Etheric.net. That's E-T-H-E-R-I-C dot net. There's a man named Dr. Joel Wallach who is anything but your typical doctor, both a veterinarian and naturopathic physician. Doc asks, why does the United States spend more money on health care by far and still rank 50th in health and longevity worldwide? He believes that people should empower themselves with a basic understanding of nutrition, take charge of their health, and attain optimal health and longevity through nutrition, not by toxic prescription drugs that lead to side effects and more toxic prescription drugs. Doc Wallach's message is resonating with an increasing number of Americans who are waking up to all the big government, big pharma, and big insurance manipulation of our health care system. I'm George Norrie, and I like what Doc Wallach is saying and doing to enlighten people about health care. Visit kscohealth.com and listen to Doc Wallach's Deadly Recipes lecture. Makes a lot of sense, and I urge you to join our team. Go to kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Welcome.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Deputy Assistant Attorney General, Mr. John Yu. And before the break, you were saying that if some of the extreme torture expressed in the Senate's report is true, then these interrogations step outside of the law, uh, but that the trouble is that there were no actual interviews done with those who performed the torture or even their victims. So there really is no confirmation of many of the conclusions that the report draws. Is that right? If they were uh, saying that anyone did commit torture in any of these episodes, who knows? But if they were uh, using interrogation methods that we did not approve in the Justice Department, then they're you know, legally at risk. But, you know, I do take the word of uh, the two different teams of prosecutors, one under the Bush administration and one under the Obama administration. Even though it's an unprecedented step uh, to even reexamine the first team's look at it, but two different teams of uh, civil service, you know, career prosecutors with no sort of partisan interest in this at all, looked at all these cases, looked at the exact same things the Senate uh, committee did and found that no one, uh, that, that there ought to be no cases brought against any of those CIA agents. I'd rather, I you know, take their word above it over a Senate committee in which no Republicans staff participated and no one was interviewed who were witnesses and no one got a chance to respond, to see the report and respond to it before mm-hmm. it was released. Mm-hmm. So we're going to move on here. We started the program today with getting clarification on what torture is and is not. So now let's talk about another term which seemed to be creating a lot of controversy after 9-11, the term enemy combatant. Uh, When our enemies used to wear military uniforms and they were part of a foreign government's military, they they were fairly easy to identify. But it's much more difficult when that enemy is a shopkeeper by day and a bomb maker by night. I think you you really hit, I think, on the central difficulty about the war that we've been fighting since 9-11. And our country, as you said at the beginning, is split on this. And for understandable reasons, I don't think anyone's being unreasonable by uh, being concerned about it or confused about it or, or taking the opposite view. And that is, is this really a war at all? You know, we're used to, as you said, fighting wars against people who are wearing the uniforms of the militaries of other countries, and we fight them on battlefields. Or is this something that's more like crime, right, where people don't wear uniforms, they're not on, operating on behalf of a state? Um, the way I think of it is that these people are fighting a war against us, and they're doing it by violating all the rules of civilized warfare, which, you know, the reasons we make people wear uniforms who are fighting is so they don't get confused with civilians. And you're not supposed to disguise yourself as a civilian and attack civilians. That's the core idea of uh, millennia of development of the rules of war. If you think about how al-Qaeda operates and other terrorist groups, they operate by violating that fundamental principle, by gaining an advantage from attacking civilians by surprise and pretending to be civilians. I don't think we should uh, fight this war and give them an advantage for choosing to cheat like that. I think, in fact, if it means anything, we should be tougher on them uh, and than we would be on a normal military-wearing uniforms of fighting by the conventional rules, because these guys in al-Qaeda or ISIS or whatever, they're, they're, they are cheating. They're trying to blur the lines between fighters and civilians, and they're trying to undermine thousands of years of the development of the rules of civilized warfare in the process. But, but clearly, if we don't call them an enemy combatant, we don't know how to treat them. Yes. Well, I think that, I mean, there are enemy combatants of different kinds. So you know, anybody we're fighting in a war is an enemy combatant. And then there are people who fight according to the rules, and those are the people who should get the Geneva Convention's protections, in my view. And we call them prisoners of war, and they, you know, they get housed in prison war camps, and so on, they have certain rights. And so. But then there are people who fight against us, who are enemy combatants too, but they don't follow the rules. And we, you know, pirates are an example of this. Uh, people who fight without uniforms on are examples, and I think terrorists are an example of this. Are terrorists just criminals, or are they enemy combatants? See, I think they're enemy combatants, but I think a lot of people in the in the country and worldwide, some you know, maybe not a majority of people, but a, a lot of people think they might just be criminals. I think this is the view in Europe, for example. A lot of European countries think of terrorists more as criminals, and, and I think. For a long time, we did too. I think in the United States until 9-11, a 
White House's administrations of both political parties did not think of terrorism as a military matter. I think on 9-11, that's why 9-11 is significant, is because I think terrorist groups crossed the line. They t- undertook an attack on our country that only nations in the past could have. In fact, many nations in the world couldn't carry out the 9-11 attack. So do you believe it was the scale of the attack? Yes, exactly. I think that when a group crosses a line and starts inflicting destruction and death on a level like that, they are uh, becoming an enemy and it becomes a war. It's not just a a large uh, police response to uh, broad crime. Mm-hmm. And how about the detainees at Guantanamo? Are they criminals so that, or are they enemy combatants? Or is there a so that, mix? Yeah, exactly. So this all, everything, all these questions about uh, our post-9-11 response really follow from that first question you posed to me about, is it war or is it crime? Mm-hmm. If it's war, then you are allowed to have camps where you hold prisoners and they don't get trials. And they get held until the war is over, the fighting's up. If they're criminals, then you can't have a Guantanamo Bay. If they're criminals, then you have to bring them back to the United States and uh, try them in federal court. And if they're convicted, you you hold them in federal prisons. But we have a very technical definition of war. Congress declares war. If Congress has not declared war, we can't exactly treat them as prisoners of war because there is no war for them to be prisoners of. Well, I, I part ways with you there because I think that the country can and has fought uh, wars many times without there being a declaration from Congress. Um, you know, we've only declared war. You mean a war without it being a war? <laughs> without it being declared. Yeah, we have fighting without a, a declared war. Because the commander-in-chief can send in troops and, and uh, engage well, in warlike activity without it being declared a war. Yeah, so we've had only five declarations of war in our history, right? We've, and World War II was the last one. Yes. But our troops have been fighting in plenty of what I would call wars, and I bet you would call wars uh, since then. Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, before that, there were plenty of wars, uh, too, that were not, they just weren't declared by Congress. I think there are a lot of young people that don't know that the Vietnam War was not a war. Well, it wasn't declared war. Yes, it was an undeclared war, even though we had a draft. Oh, yeah, Korea, too. Mm -hmm. No, I think that, that, you know, when we look at the Constitution, a lot of people say, oh, Congress has a power to declare war. So in our modern sense of things, we go, oh, that must mean Congress gets to start war. But I think in the 18th century, when the framers wrote the Constitution, that's not what a declaration of war means. It didn't mean uh, Congress has the power to decide to start hostilities. I think war, declared war was a very serious final step in a whole spectrum of different hostilities between countries. And the second thing about declared war, your point, it goes to this earlier point you made, this fundamental question you've asked is you may not even declare war against terrorist groups because they're not nation. So they may, shouldn't get the benefit of a declaration of war. Yes, I understand. It, it is a confusing... It, it can imagine, if this confuses legal scholars, what it does to the average citizen or someone like me, and I appreciate you being here today to help us straighten it out. We have to take another short break. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from John Yu. You're listening to The Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way.
When your home needs repairs, you fix it. Shouldn't we treat our bodies just as well? If you have joint pain, it's time to get help. Learn more at dominicanhospital.org. Dignity Health, including Dominican Hospital. Hello, human kindness. An intimate evening with Dr. Joel Wallach. He will be speaking at two locations March 4th and 5th. Want more than just the Dead Doctors Don't Lie show? Do you want to meet the man who took on the FDA in court multiple times and won? Dr. Wallach will speak more in depth on his research and success with the Longevity Company and how he's helping millions of people around the world reverse and prevent chronic illness and become financially healthy. Forget prescription drugs and get personalized info on what nutrients you may be lacking. Join us Wednesday, March 4th at the Elkhorn Yacht Club in Moss Landing or Thursday, March 5th at De Anza Santa Cruz. Registration for both events is at 5.30 p.m. and Doc will start promptly at 6.30. We have time dedicated for questions with the Doc and knowledgeable longevity reps. Reservations are highly recommended and both events are anticipated to reach full capacity. Please RSVP at drjwallet.eventbrite.com or call Health Coach Tara, 831-566-1654. That's 831-566-1654. This is a free event. Hi, folks. Warren Knox here of Knox Roofing. Are you aware of the 10 most wanted? Miss Sally Sunshine. She'll bake your underlayments to a crisp. Mr. Douglas Fur, known to crash into your roof without any consultation or hesitation. Mr. Forest Fire. If you don't have a fire-resistant roof, he'll toast you when he comes through your town. Mr. Joe Blow Roofer. Consider him armed and dangerous. He'll take your money and leave you with a disaster waiting to happen. Mr. Raging Rain will get into your nooks and crannies and soak you. Miss Windy Storm. She'll give your roof a royal lift when you least expect it. Mrs. Frida Frigid, her cold temperatures will crack your old shingles. Mr. Hal Handyman, he'll break more tiles and scuff up more shingles than cleaning your gutters are worth. Mr. Raunchy Roden, he'll chew a hole into your home and he'll make it his own. And last is Mr. Old Man Time. This man will visit every roof sooner or later and when he does, your time will be up. Okay, call Knox Riving to keep the 10 most wanted out of your home. 461-0634. Thanks, folks. Michael Olson's second law of the food chain. The farther we go from the source of our food, the less control we have over what's in our food. Now that so much of our food comes from thousands of miles away, we should all get together Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show tracks down who is putting what in our food. If you have a comment about the second law of the food chain, tell me. Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the Food Chain. What day was that? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is John Yu. And before the break, we were talking about wars that were never declared wars by Congress, such as our engagements in uh, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq. Um, Now, Mr. Yu, you've been vocal about... um, the uh, power of the executive branch and the president's authority to order troops into war without seeking congressional support. And you make the point that Congress's power comes from control of the purse to fund war activities. So if they're not in agreement and lockstep with the president, they simply don't fund military operations. Can, can you speak to that for a moment? Yes, and I feel bad for you because clearly you've read what I've written. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I try. (laughs) I'm proud of you, but I I feel bad for you at the same time. (laughs) I I try, but I I have to say that, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and uh, it's just like talking to a neuroscientist. I always feel feel a bit undressed. Well, we we live in California, so people do that all the time out in public. Yeah, there, there you go. So, so can you talk a little yeah. bit about that relationship where, where yeah, so, war is concerned? Yeah, so I think many people have the view I think you were describing earlier where they think, oh, Congress declares war first, then the president fights it. And that's kind of, uh, so I think, a modern reading of the words of the Constitution that actually aren't what the framers intended in their world with the language that meant then. Instead, I think what the Constitution set up was a set of powers with the president, he's primarily commander-in-chief, and a set of powers with Congress. And if they cooperate together, the country can uh, fight war with unity and full purpose and full effectiveness. 
but that if there's disagreement between the branches, well, then they're going to fight and struggle between each other with these powers. Now, for a long time, until 1945, Congress had a complete check, I think, on the president because of the powers you discussed, the funding power, the power of the size of the military. We didn't have a standing military in this country of any size until after World War II. So if the president in the period before that wanted to go to war, he would have to go to Congress and say, please build me an army and a navy to fight this war. So there was no way for the president to really fight any significant war unless Congress paid for it. Since 1945, it's different because Congress would, you know, President Congress have cooperated to create the largest military in the world, larger than all other countries' militaries put together. And Congress doesn't place any restrictions on the use of it. And so the president has more of an advantage in that system. But that's only because Congress uh, allows him to have that advantage. Right. At any point, if they don't agree, they can cut off funding. But on the other hand, it's a matter of historical record that that's not a closed-loop system. Uh, The CIA has initiated creative ways of funding private wars without Congress, uh, as in the case of Iran-Contra. And also during Vietnam, they funded operations in Laos and Cambodia with no congressional approval. So, yes, so I, I mean, if they're going to go outside the system and raise the money through allies or through illegal activities, um, it doesn't really work for the Congress to hold strings on the purse, does it? Yes, I, I agree. There have been cases where uh, members of the executive branch have gone too far and tried to get around Congress's power of the purse, usually with disastrous effects for the, the executive branch and for our policies. Um, and, and, and those actions were, I think, would be unconstitutional. I don't think the president can fight wars using money that Congress hasn't appropriated. Almost, as you mentioned, Iran-Contra, for example, almost brought down the Reagan administration, you know, one of the most popular and arguably successful administrations of, uh, you know, of our time, almost destroyed by Ollie North and John Poindexter trying to pull this uh, sort of war off the books that you describe, which actually, to me, shows how effective the power of the purse is, even... Uh, with a Congress that isn't going to challenge the president very often. In fact, I think another dynamic is working here, which uh, people may not like, but I don't think is unconstitutional, which is that Congress likes it this way. You know, Congress votes this huge army, navy, air force, lets the president use it, doesn't restrict him, because it doesn't give any responsibility or accountability to Congress for a war. Congressmen, Congressmen hate voting up or down on wars, They'd rather the president have that responsibility, and if the war goes badly, it's his fault. And if it goes well, well, they voted the supplies and support for the war in the first place. So this is, I mean, this is not a great political uh, outcome because it reduces, uh, you know, our uh, ability to hold people responsible for foreign policy decisions. But constitutionally, it's certainly acceptable, just as there have been times in our history when Congress has been the dominant uh, power in foreign affairs. Actually, I think in those periods, our national security has been much worse off than when presidents have been the ones really with the initiative. Uh, there have been wars that Congress has pushed us into, like the War of 1812, which were terrible for our country, and presidents didn't have the guts to stop it. Now, we've been talking today about some of the problems with defining torture and enemy combatants and also the powers of the executive branch. So let me ask you um, uh, your opinion about this. Are we at war with ISIL? Um, I think we are. I think that we are treating I just don't think we're pursuing it very strongly or aggressively. But I I do think the United States is in a war with uh, ISIS or ISIL or an Islamic State, uh, you know, whatever name you want to give it, um, they've attacked our citizens, they've attacked our allies. We're using force on them, right? We're, we're bombing them in coordination with allies there. I don't buy the Obama administration taking the position, which it has with the war in Libya and since, that just bombing people but without inserting ground troops means it's not a war. I, I, just, I, I think that's uh, silly, and I think most people think that's not, you know, that that's not a serious interpretation of the Constitution. But that's the position they took, which I think would have surprised, uh, uh, you know, Muammar Gaddafi, for one, who we tried to kill with, you know, with missiles and bombs. I think if we're trying to kill the head of state of another country, even just from the air, we're at war with that country, for sure. So this is going to sound like an incredibly naive question to ask you, but aside from Congress declaring we're at war, how do we know if we are a nation at war? Hey, this is not a naive question. This is a very uh, this is a hard question. I mean, this is the 
uh, questions become more difficult, as you were pointing out earlier, because of 9-11. You know, it's harder to tell what war is when our enemies are not the same as they used to be. You know, they're not nations. They can also be groups, but groups that have the power of countries, and they're fighting us in unconventional ways that look more like crime but are much more destructive. And so I can understand, as you said, a lot of people in our country, even today, uh, 14 years after the 9-11 tax, are confused about what we're facing. But I think that's because of the enemy and the way they choose to fight. And so, again, I'd return to this, well, the last thing we'd want to do is because we have this enemy that won't fight fair, that's violating all the civilized rules. I mean, you've got these people in the Middle East, ISIS, are beheading Christians and burning captured prisoners alive and doing those incredible barbaric things. Because they act that way doesn't mean, oh, we, we should say, oh, they're not really like Nazi Germany. They're not a nation, so we're not going to consider ourselves at war. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think because they are so terrible, they're like pirates of the old days. They're like mercenary bands who are fighting on behalf of no country. They're the worst of the worst. We actually should pursue them the hardest, not only say we're going to limit ourselves to fighting them with the FBI and the judicial system. The FBI and the judicial system are are, not able to handle something like these kinds of terrorist groups. That's one, unfortunately, another thing we learned on 9-11. But one thing we did learn uh, post 9-11 is also when the nation feels it's under threat by terrorist organizations, which are not necessarily part of a government military of a foreign nation, we've learned that the uh, powers of the executive branch become greater. Uh, because uh, there are certain powers allowed by the president uh, when the nation is under threat. And so it is important to some extent to define whether we're at war, whether we are seriously at threat or not, because that uh, opens the door for the president to uh, take certain liberties. Now, unfortunately, we're going to have to, I I do want to address that, but we're going to have to take our final break. So before I get your answer on that, I think we'll go to break here. And then when we come back, you can answer whether we are in threat and have been under threat since 9-11 and whether these things like warrantless wiretaps and, and, um, uh, and, 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 and some of the other uh, interrogation techniques, whether those are going to persist for long periods of time because we are under threat and we are, in fact, uh, in a war. We have to take our final break. We'll be right back with our guest, John Yu. You're listening to The Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, and I have a question for you, Scott. What goes into making Method Champenois Bubble? You know, it's a process that's really defined by the French government that we've taken and enacted into our wines, which really drive the quality of our sparkling project. So this is a process that the French government defines pretty specifically, and you remain faithful to that. Yeah, 100%, and in some places we push it a little bit. Now, how do the bubbles translate on the palate? You know, it really gives you that vehicle, that mousse for the character of the sparkling wine, carrying the fruit and the complexity. It's the expression of the wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I. Cellars, come taste the difference. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and and drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? 
Not available in California, Louisiana, and Virginia. Listeners, do you have startup capital and want to invest in a booming business with incredible profit and growth potential? The opportunity is now because Fresh Healthy Vending, the number one healthy vending franchise in North America, is looking for a few business-savvy, healthy-minded people right here in the local area to become Fresh Healthy Vending franchise owners. We're growing so fast that we've had hundreds of new franchise owners in the last few years alone. Now you can join them. This area has a huge demand for Fresh Healthy Organic Snacks on the go, and that's exactly what you'll be selling with your fresh healthy vending machines we've already identified prime high traffic locations that are perfect for healthy vending machines now we just need the right people to join our franchise network and help fresh healthy vending continue to boom if this sounds like you go to readyforfresh.com today and enter code 6565 we'll send you a free owner information kit as an added bonus to new franchise owners we'll also pay half the franchise fees hurry this offer is limited just go to readyforfresh.com and enter code 6565 that's readyforfresh.com code 6565 the original Stagnero family has been in business since 1879. The Stagnero name stands for quality, quantity, and great service. The family's Gilda's Restaurant on the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf is still the fishing headquarters of the Santa Cruz area. It's where fishermen gather each morning for coffee and breakfast before heading out on the bay. Stop by Gilda's and say hi. Dino looks forward to meeting you at Gilda's on the center of the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. This is Steph. This is Rob. Join us for Out in Santa Cruz, Saturdays at 7 p.m. as we bring you the hottest LGBT topics and guests of the week. It's fun, it's fabulous, and we don't shy away from controversy. Visit outinsantacruz.com for past shows and more. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Remember, join us on Out in Santa Cruz at 7 p.m. Saturdays on KSCO AM 1080. I'm Steph. I'm Rob. And you've you've been been queered. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is John Yu. And um, I I wanted to ask you uh, whether the powers of the executive branch grew after 9-11 and whether those powers are going to continue because the the threat is continuing. Uh, For example, uh, warrantless wiretaps. Have we opened the door to circumventing warrants? I mean, why why does anyone need a warrant anymore if they can claim it? It's a matter of national security. I agree with your worry. And that's one of the uh, reasons I think you're right to say, well, we got to be very careful and precise about defining when we're war or not, because when we're war, we want the government to have broader powers not just in surveillance, but also just in the use of force. You know, with the, if you're not at war, you can't use drones to shoot suspects you know, abroad with missiles. And you can't listen in on wiretaps uh, without a warrant, as you say. So I, you're quite right that when you switch to war from peacetime, you are expanding the powers of the executive, certainly, but you're also expanding the powers of the government as a whole. Uh, and I I agree with you. I don't think we want to live in a world where we're constantly at war all the time. But that Uh, seems to be the world we're in. We're kind of in a war that hasn't been declared war all the time now uh, that requires the executive office to have privileges that you should have under war. (laughs) I don't know if what I said made any sense at all. No, no, no. It it makes perfect sense. This is the same worry people had during the Cold War. Uh, and, I, and I think that in the end, our country and our political system and our constitution were robust enough to, uh, as a system, to make sure that even though we had to be more vigilant, spend more on the military. Again, the first time we ever had a standing army and navy in our history is during this period, a huge one, too. And take these kinds of measures, you know, classified information and a CIA, which we had never had before, and uh, all those measures... But I also don't think that during this period that the United States was a police state and that civil liberties were severely curtailed. In fact, you could say that the post-1945 period was perhaps the greatest flourishing of individual liberty our country ever knew. We had the civil rights movement. We had gender equality. We had all kinds of amazing developments that expanded individual liberty. So I, I feel confident that you know, that the United States and our country can continue to maintain that tradition without... Uh, losing a step in fighting our external enemies. So I think we're seeing that now with these issues you're talking about, with surveillance, for example. We are, I think we, we as a country are allowing the government to conduct broader kinds of electronic surveillance 
than it would do in peacetime, but it's trying to do it in a responsible and necessary way, in a way that doesn't, where the government's just not keeping track of everybody in the country for the sake of it, but it's trying to, you know, sift, they're trying to sift through the billions and billions of innocent communications to find the ones that are by the terrorists. We know they use uh, normal-looking communications to carry out their plans to attack the United States, and they're, you know, our, our agencies are trying to figure out how to get those messages without infringing on all the innocent and normal communications. And that's something we have to, that's why we have political representatives that we elect to office. We have to trust the president and the Congress together to work together to try to strike that balance. And well, if they what don't, do you, what do you do say it, to people who say this is the beginning of creepage? You know, it just keeps creeping and creeping and creeping. I mean, we're not... In law, we call that the slippery slope argument. Right? Well, like if you If you do this, then you're just the next step to doing that. This is an, Look, this is an argument that is often made in our country when civil liberties uh, are sometimes infringed on. But I would say in our history, none of those predictions have ever come true. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they'll come true now. I don't think any, I don't see anything in our history as a country to suggest that our political leaders are really interested in trying to, right, run down the road all the way to a kind of police state or national security state. It has never happened, even when we've been under, uh, you know, threats uh, as bad or perhaps worse like this, like the Soviet Union in the Cold War period. So I, I actually think our people in government are trying to be very responsible in balancing the need to get this information with uh, individual liberty and privacy. And I was one of those two people. I don't want to live in a world where people just read my emails, listen to my phone calls for the fun of it, and keep files on all of us to follow us around. But I do think that our government also can't be handicapped from carrying out its mission of protecting us from attack by people trying to infiltrate the country and disguise themselves as civilians and then carry out attacks like 9-11. I, I think so far the country has done it, uh, the government's done it, and I think a majority of Americans have consistently, when this has been put to the test in elections, have been satisfied with the balance. And the courts have too. The courts have not thrown any of this out so far. In fact, they've, uh, in many respects, have accepted and blessed what the other branches are doing. They absolutely have, and you're right about that. And I get lots of uh, emails about this when I say, well, they're welcome to check all my emails and phone calls because they're not very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it's just got to be a lot of people from Nigeria offering to lend you millions of dollars. That's exactly right. So, you know, give me the form. I'll fill it out and say, you know, have uh, have at it. Go ahead. Listen. Listen up all you want. Uh, I think you ought to uh, provide the people that have to listen to my messages lots of caffeine. Uh, and no dose. Um, lastly, I just wanted to ask if you if you had to do it over again, would you include a stern warning with your legal opinion that that there was danger in overstepping? I, I realize that was not your position as as deputy attorney general, uh, but there's that old saying: you give people an inch, they'll take a mile. Um, it almost feels as though, uh, in some instances, that occurred here. I, I think that's maybe some people might have that impression, but I think if you look at the facts compared to what the United States has done in past wars, I think people here were trying to be uh, restrained and responsible. You know, first to answer your question, your exact question, you know, as a lawyer, I, you know, I think it's our job to give the people have to make the harder decisions what the best reading of what the law allows and doesn't allow. Yes, and you're right, and that's a technical say, issue. That's a yeah, and then we could say, yeah. yeah, and we could say, look, be careful. Here are, you know, political costs and minuses or policy costs and minuses, but that should not influence how we interpret the law. You know, that's that's why we uh, elect people like George Bush or Barack Obama to office. They get paid the big bucks to make the really hard decision, which is, even if I can do this legally, is it a good idea? Is it a good policy? Right? Should I yes. use drones to shoot people who are terrorists, even Americans? That's the law may allow you to do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. And that's the harder question. I think sometimes in our country, people want the law to answer all the questions for them, and that's not what we do. The law, you know, it's like it, it sets out the playing field, right? It tells you what's inbounds and out of bounds, but you still have to call the plays. And I think that's you know, the law doesn't answer all the questions. The hardest questions, like the ones you're posing are the ones that our political leaders that we elect have to decide. Well, that's where the law and policy differ. 
And yeah. uh, sometimes we do. You're right about this. We do get confused. We want the law to set policy, but someone has to eventually make that decision. Now, we are almost out of time, but before we let you go, do you have a website where listeners can go to get information on your books and keep up with your activities? God, I wish I did. <laughs> I, mean, I, I need to get a 12-year-old kid who could probably put all together in you about 30 do. minutes. You do. You're right here near Silicon Valley, and you don't have, you don't have a website. Now, where... no, I have you know, a website at Berkeley at the law school and one at okay. the American Enterprise Institute, and those both collect... Uh, a lot of things I write and uh, do, so, but uh, okay, I wish so I could. Okay, so they can they can go to the uh, University of California Berkeley website, and uh, if you type in John Yu, you'll go to his website, and you'll be able to get information on his books. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. But before we say goodbye, I want to thank you for uh, helping us set the record straight and for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Mister Yu. Oh, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Anytime. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with John Yu, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And if you joined our broadcast late or you missed the interview with you, remember you can always download episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And be sure to check out our new radio blog, which is posted every week on our website. Uh, the blog captures the headline from our interviews every week so take a moment to check it out and uh, while you're there at the website be sure you register so you automatically receive our monthly newsletter uh, which tells you what the upcoming guest list is for the month and uh, it also gives you some new videos and news stories that only the costa report is covering my guest next week is former congressman from Ohio, Mr. Dennis Kucinich, who claims Americans must take back the monetary system and also our right to privacy. How does he propose we do this? Find out when Dennis Kucinich joins us next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.